We would like to dedicate this podcast to the memory of Madison Richard. If you or someone you know is experiencing significant distress or suicidal ideation, we have posted some resources on the MindingTheBrainPodcast.com website. If you are in Canada, please call the toll-free crisis hotline at 1-833-456-4566. In the USA, 1-800-273-8225. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 28, Wrapping Your Brain Around the Coronavirus. We are definitely living in strange times. Right now, we have a COVID-19 pandemic that's been caused by a coronavirus. We're all holed up in our houses and not seeing anybody except the people that we live with if we live with anyone at all. We've had to figure out a way even to record this episode from completely different houses. I would like to just comment right there, actually, that uh, I want to thank Meg Wilcox, who's a uh, a journalism professor at Mount Royal, who uh, gave us uh, information about how to record. And so I'm in my closet right now talking into the clothing. (laughs) (laughs) I have uh, surrounded myself with sheets. Normally we record it at Carlton, but uh, yes. Yeah, so now we are we are we are social yeah. distancing or uh, physical distancing and still trying to keep the podcast going. <laughs> Woohoo! So we thought we we'd talk about the psychology of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and I guess what we'll start out with is in fact this topic. Jim, can you talk to us a little bit about how the pandemic might be affecting people's mental lives? Sure. So right now we're all being asked to practice physical distancing. Um, and that means not going out unless it's necessary. And, you know, when you are, are with uh, people outside, you stay more than six feet apart. Um, and in this episode, I, this kind of social distancing or physical distancing, I'm just going to, when I say isolation, I'm just talking about like trying to stay physically away from uh, people. Uh, the problem is that we're extremely social creatures and isolation has a negative effect on uh, most people. And specifically, uh, it's the social interaction uh, that can be a real problem. Uh, this is particularly acute for people who are in isolation all alone. So I have friends who are isolated with people that they love. Maybe they're married or something like that, or they've got pets. Um, and I've got other friends who have nobody at all. Uh, so it's well known that in psychology and in medicine, that social isolation leads to depression, um, clouded thinking, and a lot of other mental health issues. Uh, What might be less known is that it also has physical health implications, Uh, things like your heart and your immune system. Do you know much about that, Kim? Yeah. So, in fact, this is um, something that I have studied, and and certainly there's a lot of members in our department who look at the effects of social isolation, loneliness on the immune system, immune functioning, and mental health. And so I want to call out uh, Dr. Jaime Anisman, who is uh, an expert on this field, as well as my colleague, uh, Dr. Robin McQuaid at the Royal Ottawa Hospital. But certainly, it, it makes sense to try to understand how it is that social isolation and loneliness might impact our, our health and well-being, uh, we, we can turn to our ancestors, right? And we can try to understand 
how our ancestors would have been faced with specific kinds of stressors. So imagine you're living in times when food and shelter were unpredictable, the threat of famine or predation was much more common. And when our ancestors lived in social groups, it actually enhanced our survival because we're more likely to be protected and have other members in our social network seek out food and help defend against predators, for example. And so if an individual found themselves in a position where they might be socially isolated, this this would initiate a stress response. And this is actually beneficial in the short term, right? The stress response is there so that what it does is it floods our body with hormones and, neuro and our brain with specific neurotransmitters. And what it does is it essentially puts out that stress, uh, that fight or flight response so that the organism is, is motivated to seek out shelter or other um, uh, social individuals. Um, the problem is that this is very good in, in the acute, right? So the, the, the organism is alert and, you know, might be moving around trying to, to find food and shelter. But if the social isolation is prolonged, uh, and there, or there may be no end in sight, this is when it can have, uh, real consequences on our health and wellness. And there's good evidence. Well, what we do know is that the major stress hormones that are initiated, so things like cortisol, for example, actually dampen the effects of the immune system. And this is, again, beneficial in the short term. You don't want to be, you want to be ex using all the energy to fight the stressor. But in the long term, this can definitely, you have lots of pro-inflammatory cytokines, those specific molecules that signal in the immune system. And this can make us more susceptible to disease. And so things like heart disease is very common in people who are experiencing lots of social isolation or social disconnection. And also, of course, the brain, which is an organism that is similarly impacted by the, the, the rush of these hormones constantly churning out a stress response. And so there is um, a wealth of evidence showing that depression and anxiety can be commonly experienced after prolonged periods of social uh, isolation or loneliness. And interestingly, uh, Jim, I think you, you happened upon an article that was recently published to show, um, that in fact, craving, uh, for social connectedness, um, uses similar brain circuits as if you were hungry for food. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. They did a study in, uh, people who were craving food and, um, feeling socially isolated, uh, had similar kinds of, uh, brain reactions, which is, it makes it sound like people have a kind of a hunger for, uh, for socially uh, interacting. And, you know, th this is, uh, it has implications for compliance because uh, if, if, if the need for social uh, interaction is anything like the need for food in terms of how it reacts in your brain, it's going to get, it's, it might be hard for in the long term for people to uh, isolate appropriately. Yeah, well, I think it speaks to the very crucial and fundamental need for social connection as as part of our integral to our survival because those circuits in the brain that mediate craving for food uh, are also the one they're there because we need food to eat right so it sounds yeah. like social connectedness may be much more um, necessary for our survival than perhaps we we have uh, understood yeah and I want to so, add that you know some people like oh I'm an introvert so I don't need social interaction but uh, right at our uh, in the psychology department at Carleton, John Zelensky did work to show that um, even when introverts are asked to act like extroverts, they're happier. So it might be that the uh, introverts, their needs are not 
their, their social needs are still there, even if they find it challenging or uh, energy draining to engage in them. So do you think that introverts and extroverts might experience prolonged social isolation similarly? I think that that and nobody is so introverted, almost nobody is so introverted that they don't need social interaction. And mm-hmm. uh, even if they find the idea of social interaction taxing or they, they think, oh, I don't really want to do that, um, in general, when they do engage in it, they are happier. Hmm. So let's go, let's cycle back to um, the effects of social isolation on mental health. I know that the early days of the pandemic, there was certainly reports of the the individuals that were stuck on the cruise ships Mm. in these tiny rooms uh, with no windows for up to 12 days. Um, How, how would have, you know, how, how would that have impacted? I mean, I think that most people just imagining being in a small windowless room for 12 days uh, is horrifying enough, <laughs> but particularly if you don't have your charger. Um, but uh, huh. <laughs> uh, that is, it's very similar to um, what they do to puni- uh, punish people who are in prison, right? So what they call solitary confinement in prison. So, you know, think about this. When you're in prison, you're already being punished. And if you act badly there, they have to think of a further punishment for you. And the only way they do it is they socially isolate you, right? So social isolation is so bad that it's the punishment that they give to prisoners, right? Uh, and they hate it. Prisoners hate it. It's one of the things, few things you can do to them that they absolutely hate, um, just being stuck in a room all by themselves with nothing but their thoughts. Um, and long-term solitary confinement um, is so bad for you. Your mind, your emotional breakdown, it causes emotional breakdown that it's considered a human rights offense. So um, it's it's almost like considered a kind of torture in some places. So uh, yeah, in its extremes, social social isolation can be very very deleterious. Yeah, it's it's horrifying, and I think we need to be mindful that there are many individuals going into the pandemic and into social isolation that may already be experiencing ill mental health, and the social isolation can further disconnect them from their social networks and may worsen their their ongoing mental health. And also populations of people who may be at more risk or more vulnerable and who may be coming out of uh, the socialization period with uh, a new uh, mental health disorder. So I'm certainly not the first to mention this, and I won't be the last, but I think that we can definitely expect a second wave to this pandemic where we will see uh, huge uh, increases and rises in mental health problems amongst our population, uh, in particular things like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and increased suicidality. Yeah, and you know, uh, someone we had on the podcast already, Matthew Rippey-Young, a, a friend of both of ours and a therapist, um, He's been doing like full-time online counseling. So luckily, counseling is something that helps and can be done virtually, which is uh, really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and but yes, the coming mental health crisis, you know, following the uh, the the physical health crisis, or maybe even contemporaneously if it goes on too long, uh, would be really bad. A recent poll, uh, people self-reported that their mental health had been made worse by uh, the pandemic. Um, and it is uh, known that isolation and economic recessions uh, contribute to depression. So we're going to we are involved with a recession right now, and it, it, we don't know how long it'll last. That uncertainty, uh, being in financial stress, all can uh, lead to depression. And the very physical distancing that we're asked to do makes it difficult to engage in some of the top activities that you can do for yourself to reduce depression, which are socializing and exercise. 
Yeah, these are some of the most obvious. Those are beneficial uh, and and buffer against ill mental health. Uh, and then the opposite situation is also bearing out, which is that when individuals are feeling stress, anxiety, and depression, some individuals may turn to alcohol or other drugs to as a means of coping. And certainly, uh, this is something that may well we also see as an outcome to the pandemic is increasing uh, populations of people with problematic substance use. And certainly, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction uh, just released uh, data from a survey they, they did um, obviously online, uh, looking at alcohol and drug use. And, and what they're seeing is at least a quarter of the population has reported that their amount of alcohol consumption has increased as a result of the pandemic, mostly out of boredom, being out of their routine, um, or feeling stressed. So these are things that, we, again, um, the society at large needs to be mindful of. And we need to prepare ourselves for providing adequate resources and support for people coming out of this pandemic, or like you say, even continuously uh, in, in line with, um, depending on how long it goes, we might need to certainly up the amount of telehealth uh, right. that some of our psychological uh, friends are doing. Uh, my wife and I wrote a limerick about the long lines at the pot store in Canada. <laughs> so to all our... Uh, People outside of Canada, uh, marijuana and cannabis, it's legal to sell it. So there are stores. Uh, we wrote a little limerick. Uh, Since Canada legalized Mary Jane, people don't have to abstain. Don't get nervous. It's an essential service. But the line goes three blocks in the rain. <laughs> so we we have seen a big, you know, we just, people have, the lines have been longer since COVID-19, for sure. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's important not to... Um, when we see individuals using substances, we should further not stigmatize them um, right, right. and ensure that we're, we're engaging in compassionate outreach and harm reduction approaches with individuals who might be using. And that's why, uh, you know, I think it was wise of Doug Ford uh, in the provincial government to make alcohol and LCBO an essential service because it can be very dangerous uh, for individuals who are uh, addicted to alcohol in particular to perhaps, if they didn't have access to legal um, alcohol, they could go into withdrawal, which is actually um, can be lethal. Or turn but to, I think, yeah, turn to illegal drugs. Yeah, exactly. So, the other yeah. side of staying at home, uh, and and for good or for bad, is is being stuck with people you may not want to be, right? Now you're not talking about your kids, are you, Kim? Oh no, come on, Jim. I your love kids my are, kids. Your kids are perfect, <laughs> <laughs> little angels. They are. Um, um, but I think it's important that we address another issue that is coming out, which is um, increased rates of domestic abuse. Right, right. So uh, that's alarming, um, and you know they're. Some of this might be just because you're spending more time with each other. So um, if there's a certain probability of abuse uh, for a certain number of hours, or like every hour, there's a certain probability. Obviously, if you spend more hours with somebody, there's going to be more. But um, I think we all can sort of understand that being confined with some person can fray your nerves and increase irritation and aggression. So, um, you know, that's, that's really hard. Yeah. And, and again, something that... Uh, I think there's now a hotline that's been released for um, women who may be experiencing um, spousal abuse so that they can uh, get in touch with uh, appropriate individuals to receive care and support because, indeed, this has been um, such a huge concern. And certainly, also, we need to be mindful of children 
who may also be at risk of increasing um, abuse right, due right. to, you know, already people, like you said, are nerves are frayed, more, more aggressive uh, outbursts, not, not very good coping strategies. But um, speaking more on the positive, uh, there's still what we're doing now, which is electronic communication, right? Um, and it does help even when you're physically isolated. It doesn't mean that you're socially isolated. Right. And, and, and thank goodness this didn't happen in the early 90s when you had your plan had 100 text messages and you had to count your minutes. <laughs> remember that? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> we're old enough to remember that. Um <laughs> So the kind of social interaction that people need can be uh, attained through um, this kind of uh, technological medium, which is great. So voice and video chatting, uh, they it turns out they are very satisfying with respect to our need to socialize. So you can satisfy a lot of your need to have social interaction just talking on the phone or having a video chat of some kind. Now, physical touch is also important, um, but, uh, you know, and that obviously you can't get yet <laughs> through electronic means. Uh, but in terms of just interacting with the human being, these electronic methods really do help. Yeah, for sure. Do, do you want to share some of the stuff that you guys have been doing? Yeah. So when my wife and I were very social, um, uh, very both extreme extroverts uh, on when we take personality tests. And um, we like to have people over for dinner, sometimes three nights a week. Um, and so, you know, we're glad we have each other and we have an adorable little dog. But uh, we still like, you know, need social interaction. So we've been having uh, video chat dinners and we had some with Kim and her family once. And um, uh, what we do is we just put them on uh, Google Hangouts or Zoom or, or Facebook Messenger video. We've used all of them, <laughs> everything but Skype. Uh, and we've done this about 10 times. You know, um, it's April. This is being recorded in April 2020. So uh, we, we've been doing it a lot and uh, it's, it's been a big help. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I too have been doing, um, Zoom exercise. So I do, uh, mm. a Fit Mom boot camp. Shout out to, uh, uh, Sue McDonald and her Fit Mom enterprise. And it's, it's really awesome. So we can see each other on the screen and she'll direct our, our exercise and she will often pause and ask us all, you know, for example, what are we grateful for? What kind of local food, uh, or, or local, um, stores are we frequenting so she's still trying to manage and maintain that social connection in spite of being in that virtual space mm -hmm. um, and i've also had like cocktail hours with girlfriends where we um, just call each other up and and on zoom or facetime and chat and i th I, I, I it's been really really um, vital and like you i'm an extreme extrovert and so i i've really appreciated the opportunity to see my friends faces um mm and and socialize with them in ways that um still maintain that social connection yeah. so what do you think about emails and text messages so how, how is that yeah they, like they, does that support they are not quite as good as people think and uh one of the problems is is that it, it feels like it helps um this is including um social media uh stuff the way it's typically used but um there was one, it feels like it helps, but it doesn't help very much. So uh, there was one study where they ha they put these teenage girls through a very difficult test, like a math test in front of, like an oral math test in front of some like uh, disapproving adults or something like that. <laughs> something very <laughs> stressful and hard. And then afterward, uh, one group got like no consoling. A second group of girls got consoling from their mothers through a text message chat, you know. And then the third group had mothers getting uh, calling on the phone their daughters and consoling them. 
And um, it turns out that the um, the phone call helped the girls feel better. Uh, and they even measured uh, physiological changes. Uh, and this was recorded there too. But the girls who got text messages were no better off than the girls who had nothing at all. Um, and, and, you know, it's, hmm. you know, it, it, there's a big trend now uh, of not talking on the, or the, before the COVID-19 anyway, a big trend of not talking on the phone. Young people were loath to pick up the phone. Um, and they were like texting all the time, but, uh, it, you know, at least th this study seems to show that it's not quite as effective as people think it is. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's something about the voice, right? Clearly there's like just even that hearing, you know, cause you're, you're not seeing their face, but it just goes to show hearing the voice has, it's, it's one level up from just a, a visual message or yeah, something. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of communication in what we call prosody, which is, you know, your your right. tone and your speed yeah. at which you say it. And we've all encountered text-based misunderstandings. And, you know, we have a whole, like, language of emojis to try to get around the problem <laughs> of, you know, of not, uh, you know... Uh, uh, yeah. Like, if you say okay with a period, it you know, people, like, like scry like a crystal ball into what that means. Like... It, <laughs> You know, it, does that mean that you're pissed off? Does it, does, or yes, maybe it's fine, yes, you know? Yes, and, but yes. when you say, okay, mm -hmm. uh, on the phone, like I say, okay, or okay, or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. the, how I say it, it communicates a whole lot. Uh, so I think that that's, um, that's really important. But the other thing is, you know, we are, um, we didn't evolve to read. Like reading and mm. writing is an invention of humanity and it's not nearly as natural as hearing someone's voice. And, you know, yeah, seeing their face is also natural, but you got, you know, you got to understand that in most, most human evolution, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of light at night, but we talked late into the night. So we're used to hearing voices without even seeing anything, you know? That's fascinating. So what do you think about social networks, things like Facebook? Um, uh, so, I, the, the studies I've seen show that they, they don't seem to do much good. Um, now, Facebook is, if you use it correctly, <clears throat> it can be good, right? So they, I think the, the studies I'm familiar with seem to show that if you use it to arrange in-person meetings, so it's not a substitute for socializing. It is a, um, a means to help the face-to-face you know, -face socializing. Uh, mm. The people who use it that way, um, Facebook helps them. But... Um, it not just using Facebook by itself doesn't seem to help much. And sometimes it makes people feel worse. I think we've all, anybody who's been on Facebook kind of knows that Facebook can kind of be a highlight reel of your life. So, mm. you know, when you see like, oh, this person's doing this and this person lost weight and this person did, and then you're, yeah. and then when you look at your own life, you see the good and the bad and you're like, oh, look, my life has like half good stuff, half bad stuff, but everybody else's life is really good. And you get these like mm. uh, these upward comparisons, which make people feel um, can make people feel bad. Yeah. And I think it's also uh, worth saying that if people are on these social networks or even things like Twitter or getting news and information about the COVID pandemic constantly, this can fuel anxiety. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. really important to take breaks from these kinds of spaces so that you're not constantly worrying through all the possibilities and outcomes and the tragedies um, that are that may be unfolding globally. So, yeah, I think that's really smart. People use the yeah. term information diet. Have you heard of that? 
So they no. they go on an information diet, which is like they stop consuming so much information, right? Hmm. And I think, you know, I've, um, you know, I think it's important during COVID-19 to keep abreast of certain things. But I think it's really important for everyone to ask themselves, how much information do you really need? And mm-hmm. how much of the information you're getting during the day have you already gotten? So mm-hmm. you're watching the news. If you have the news on all day long, you are probably getting repeats of the same stuff. And it might be worth asking, like, okay, in the last two hours, how much have I really learned that I hadn't known two hours ago? And you might find that just listening to a simple radio broadcast uh, every day or every other day even is probably enough, right? Like, and and yeah. and all that stuff, so, you know, can amplify your anxiety because your 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 mind is going to think about what you're putting into it to some extent. And if you're putting nothing into it but scary stuff, which is what the news is, you know, uh, tends to do. Uh, it can it can exacerbate your anxiety. Yeah, for sure, especially because we can't control that, right? And that's where people's ang- anxious thoughts sort of spiral, is because all of this is happening and unfolding around them, and and, and there's no ability to control that. Um, what's going to happen? So mm-hmm. take a break, unplug, do what you can control, which is to unplug, to go out for a walk, call a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's switch to uh, talking about people's beliefs and attitudes around the pandemic. Uh, and kind of related to this, you know, we're getting a lot of our information online or through your social network. Um, and I, I'm wondering if you've, you've heard of the concept of the echo chamber. Yes. So the echo chamber is an interesting thought that has a lot of intuitive appeal. And I think the idea of the echo chamber is that in an online social network like Facebook or Twitter or something, People are going to friend other people and follow other people that they have, that they share values with, political values, moral values, um, more so than in real life, right? So where you might have real life friends from, you know, different, of different view, having different viewpoints online, you tend to uh, friend people who share similar values. So what happens is that when you engage in social interactions, you get kind of a biased view of the world. Uh, where you only see people who agree with your points of view. So the idea is that you just keep hearing your own views back at you all the time, like an echo chamber. You don't get exposed to new views, and then this can lead to like political polarization or something like that. Um, so that's that's my understanding of the theory of the echo chamber. But when I looked into the science of it, I, I don't. I'm not convinced that it really happens. Actually, really, why is that? Well, the studies. If you study what kinds of friends people uh, friend on these social networks. They don't always share your political views, right? So uh, those people who are on Facebook or other social networks probably have had the experience of you have a positive interaction with somebody. Maybe, you know, you're in a bowling league together or some really flimsy (laughs) social connection, but you had a positive interaction with them. They they try to friend you and you accept whatever. This happens all the time. So people can become friends on these things for actually very flimsy reasons that have nothing to do with politics or morality, right? Um, And then... So let's say like I go I go bowling and then I I befriend Angela and I friend Angela because we had a you know we we got along uh, and then she posts something that's very much uh, like like a reactionary political view I might comment on it and say hey that's not that's not supported or that's not cool or whatever this actually happens a lot more on Facebook okay hmm. because I wouldn't bring up you know Angela and I would not bring up a hot political topic. It's just not polite to do it. We would not bl- bring up a hot political topic at the bowling league, 
right? So what seems to be happening is people are actually getting exposed to more cross what we might call cross-political interactions and cross-political viewpoints uh, on the social media. Uh, so it's because of the kind of people we friend and the kind of things that people post that the echo chamber doesn't really seem to be happening. Hmm. Yeah. But so I thought Facebook had an algorithm that shows you only what you want to see. Yes, that is true. So that now the people aren't usually talking about that when they refer to an echo chamber. But to the extent that there is an echo chamber, I think that's the that's what it is. So face Facebook. Uh, you, your, your friends basically post way more stuff than you could possibly see. So Facebook has an algorithm that filters it and gives it to you the stuff that it thinks that you're going to like. So it tracks your interactions. Who do you like? Who do you follow? Who do you comment on? And they give you more of those people. Uh, so I've had people say like, oh, how do I see more of your posts? I'm like, well, you can just like more of them and then they'll show up because the algorithm will put that there, right? So uh, there are studies of how these algorithms affect what people see in terms of like news and stuff. Um, and that is that, 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 that's where it happens, right? So if you have a particular political viewpoint, um, these social networks will tend to give you more opinions that you'll probably agree with um, because you, you like them. If you like a certain opinion, it has certain words in it. Right. The algorithm is going to think, oh, they like articles that have these words in it. And those tend to be ones that you, you know, agree with. Do you know if other social networks or social media use those kinds of algorithms like Twitter? Well, or I don't think Twitter does. Instagram? I think I think Twitter. I mean, you use Twitter more than me. But yeah. um, Twitter gives you everything, doesn't it? Like when you go to Twitter, you see know. the most recent things, not the most important things. You see the most recent things. And if you missed something. 10 hours ago, it's gone. I mean, you have to scroll way down to find it. Is that right? Right. I think so. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's not just Twitter. I mean, it's also like Google News and stuff. Like, if you search on I, Google, you'll find your stuff is filtered. Like, you, if you go into, like, uh, somebody else's computer and do the same search, you get different results. Huh. What? Okay. Well, that, yeah. So, this is actually yeah. has come up in, like, research. Uh, I've been, like, defending a thesis, and they'll say, oh, when I search Google... These things really? come up first, and somebody in the committee says, uh, "Did you do it in private mode? Because that is—I'm not going to get the same thing on my, when I search Google." <laughs> wow, mind blown. Okay, let's talk more about beliefs and views relevant to the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. What, what about that? Right. So this points to a larger problem. Many of the most important ways that we should be thinking about problems like uh, coronavirus are made more difficult because we are put in a fearful state by the pandemic. Now, even at the best of times, we have a very hard time thinking straight about any kind of magnitudes, like numbers and probabilities, lengths of time, all that stuff. Our minds are just, they kind of just cut to, like, <laughs> they ignore numbers. For, for a lot of it, they just mm -hmm. ignore numbers and uh, just make decisions based on the other content. Um, we think in absolutes, and this is increased when we're stressed out. So if we get stressed out, we're less open to thinking about nuance. You know, like even at the best mm -hmm. of times, though, people like they don't know the difference between a million and a billion. Like it, it doesn't change anything mm -hmm. for them, right? Like, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's that that the, being afraid and being stressed out makes you more a little bit more thinking in absolutes. Yeah, and I think in times of uncertainty, people tend to be more drawn to conspiracy theories. And like what I'm seeing is there's this sort of interesting social divide where there are people who uh, are, you know, following all the social dis uh, physical distancing and they're they're being mindful of, of what the virus 
could be doing in terms of their uh, the health of themselves or their loved ones. And then there's like people who think like the coronavirus is a hoax or even downplay the severity of the virus. Like, oh, it's just like the flu. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So I think. It's, yeah, it's interesting to see that there, this polarization, and it seems to be also related to political views. Yeah, right? so uncertainty, uncertainty, and fear makes people believe more in like uh, miracle cures and fake news, and engage in what what, what psychologists call conspiratorial thinking. So, um, people also think that like big events need big causes, right? So, for many people, hmm. like one person eating a bat could not possibly have caused a world. To collapse, like mm-hmm, it, it just mm-hmm. doesn't make sense intuitively. Right. Uh, this also happened during AIDS, right? People just mm-hmm. like were thinking that, like, sp- sp- thinking that AIDS was engineered by some government, and and the same things are coming up with coronavirus, right? Like it's so it's so ridiculous to come up with a virus like this as a weapon. I mean, it's oh, such I a know. it's such a stupid idea that it's hard to believe that any government would ever do it. But these conspiracy theories just seem to come back up every time. And part of it is it just doesn't feel right to our very primal minds that such a big deal could be caused by something so small and stupid. Yeah, and, and, and people see, seem to be <clears throat> abandoning completely scientific thinking. Well, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, more than usual. <laughs> but not yeah, the people listening to this sad. podcast, because people listening no, to this podcast are clearly interested right. in science. So it's clear, like there are these political implications, and and certainly we can see um, when people call coronavirus the Chinese virus, mm-hmm. it's probably and and this was you know certainly early identified early on in uh, the onset of the pandemic. This has probably led to like hate crimes that are committed against people of East Asian heritage. Yeah, and I you know in my lo- my little local paper, my local local paper, the Centertown News or something, they said, you know, if you order out, please consider Chinatown because mm-hmm. a lot of people are not ordering Chinese food because they they associate it with the virus. You know, it it's as silly as I mean not eating the Chinese food in Ottawa because coronavirus originated in China is 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 really silly. I mean, it's it's about as silly as like people not buying the Corona beer, which you probably oh, also heard about. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so you know, when people think about contagious disease in general, it affects their political views. So when people are primed with infectious disease, right? Um, they're shown pictures of people who are diseased or something like that. It does at least temporarily affect their political views. They become more ethnocentric, more xenophobic. Uh, and people tend to trust the people around them more and less people who are deemed to be outsiders. And in fact, some of these more um, distrust of outsiders correlates with how much infectious disease is in a country. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's interesting stuff. So, but huh. you, but countering this, like there's a there's an opposite force going in the other direction, countering xenophobia, um, is that people are their feelings of coming together. So. When there's a global problem like this that's really acute, there is a feeling that we're all in this together. And so we have this sort of a community resilience. Uh, we have a shared experience, and that can help us feel like we're in the same group. Yeah, and I'm really seeing lo- there's lots of waves of this and evidence of this, like communities that are um, coming together, you know, posting. I don't know if you've seen people posting signs in their win- in windows, right? We're in this together. Support the frontline workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister the other day posted she's seeing uh, people painting stones and, and putting messages and, uh, and 
um, putting these stones in the forest by her house. So there's really interesting and neat ways of people kind of coming together to to kind of unite against the common enemy, which in this case is the coronavirus. So what else can we do to help or encourage people to behave the way they should and help us hashtag flatten the curve? Flatten the curve, right. Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, a lot of people's immediate response ideas to give more scientific information to change their minds and their views. And as we've talked about, that is problematic. Uh, The evidence with regard to coronavirus is a little bit spotty, but it does appear that when you're asking people to do things like uh, physical distancing, knowing the facts helps them do this. What people really don't want is to be coerced. So they don't like being told to do what to do. They don't like being told what to do for no reason. Like they want to know the reasons. So that's definitely true. Um, and, and there's also studies that show that people are more compliant if you frame the activity in terms of altruism rather than making them feel like they're coerced. So telling them you stay in or else, that makes people, <laughs> they get their back up, right? But if you say, yeah. hey, look, look, how, how about the, you know, you, even if you're not threatened, how about the people who are vulnerable and stay in to prevent the disease? We're all, you know, we're all doing this together. That actually makes people more compliant than uh, forcing people. Yeah, and I've noticed um, like kind of almost this worrying trend where the media is reporting on people that are misbehaving, right? Or even like kind of this like police state, right? Where neighbors might be ratting on other neighbors where they are not um, following the social, the physical distancing rules, right? But it seems like that might actually discourage bad behavior. Oh, you mean encourage it? No, like when you're reporting on people misbehaving, right? Were you oh, inc- yes. Yeah. Well, it can go. Yeah, yeah. There, there are forces going both ways. So if you are um, so some, you know, getting people to do what you want them to do is very hard, as we all know. <laughs> um, yeah. But, the, you know, studies seem to show that there's a, something called social proof, which is one of the most effective ways. And basically, people will tend to behave in a way if they think everybody else is doing it. So if they think everybody else is doing it, if it's right, they think it's really great. If it's wrong, they think it must not be so bad. So part of the problem is that um, if you report lots of people misbehaving, it might make the pop the population feel that they might, if they disbehave, it's not going to be a big deal because so many people are doing it. On the other hand, um, shaming people and social, you know, causing social shame can discourage people from acting badly. So, um, you know, I know that like we're, there's a big battle against the feeling of shame. Um, mm. but one of the only ways to get people to recycle or use less energy is to basically shame them. So you send them a message saying, Hey, you're using 50% more energy than your neighbors. Like that's a, that form of shaming actually, um, does encourage people to change their behavior more than, uh, most other things that you can do. So you're saying that if, if you see somebody not following the social distancing rules, you should call them out on it. Well, I don't know if I want to recommend that, um, hmm. but uh, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I think this is more about uh, public, I, I'm more public comfortable shaming. making rep- recommendations about what the government should, how they should be messaging this, mm. um, it, rather than, I, you know, I don't think that we should be turning on each other necessarily in the streets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you see somebody um, in a store doing something that is, uh, you think is wrong, like you really don't know what's going on with that person. Like, you yeah. know, they, you know, um, like I, I shop with the old people in the morning, like at, at, at like seven in the morning, it's, it's open for vulnerable populations. And I shop then. Um, and I'm not, 
65, mm-hmm. but I'm immune suppressed. But you can't tell I'm immune suppressed by looking at me. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't want Fair. to have to deal with four people coming up to me and saying, hey, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. You're taking advantage of the system. True. <laughs> right? So I'm just Very good point. concerned about that. So finally, let's let's talk about panic buying. So often in disasters and situations like public health crises like we're in right now, people sense a certain product is going to be scarce. And then they all go to the store and buy all of it. And then people who might need it won't get it. Yeah. So this is like a this is a a, people get scared and they want to hoard something. Um, And, you know, I'm not going to mention what people are hoarding because um, part of the problem is media outlets. And I consider this a media outlet. Uh, mm-hmm. If if they had just shut their mouths about what people were making a run on, there would be no run on those products. <laughs> yeah. So it's I think it's it, like right. oh look, people are behaving badly. Mm-hmm. They're making they're everybody's making a run mm-hmm. on this product, and then everyone hears that and they're like, oh, yeah. I need to get that product before everyone yes. else buys it. You know. Yes. So, agree. Uh, you know, I'm just hoping the next big thing will that people will have a big run on popular science books. So. Oh, Jim, <laughs> you can dream. <laughs> This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part, by mitochondria, for giving our neurons the energy to make sense of themselves. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.